The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for singing around. I know it's late, but we have a great show lined up for everyone tonight. We really, really do. Genevieve, how are you doing over there? I'm doing quite all right. I'm a bit hot. A bit hot in here. It's that time of the year, folks. We're officially in summer, and boy, this week—it's been a crazy week to be the, the. I think the first official week of summer, right? We we got England well, voting we out the, of. Well, we had the summer solstice the on the twenty-first. Oh gosh, no! Like I, I am signing petitions up, down, well, right, and left. You, yeah, it? like I am. I want a revote. I mean, I wasn't there, but I know all my friends want a revote, and. I am standing behind that, and I am just sad I can't be there to put my vote in. Yeah, I know. I mean, between that and what's going on in Oaxaca, I mean, the the, the world, it's, it's a the pretty wild is going place to right now. S- Tonight, we're going to touch on something that maybe uh, has something to do with the people up in the higher echelons of power that maybe mm-hmm, allow some mm-hmm. of these things, these things to... Uh, to occur in the world for yeah. whatever agenda they may have. And uh, let me kind of like set it up for people really quick. Tonight, our guest is Mr. Uh, Jay Dyer. I came across a really interesting article that he wrote on the movie Eyes Wide Shut. Now, anybody that knows me knows I'm a big fan of uh, Kubrick and uh, a lot of his films. And Eyes Wide Shut is probably at the top of my list, believe it or not, mm-hmm. of uh, films that Kubrick made. And I remember watching this movie shortly after it came out. And it was one of those things where I was watching this thing and I I felt like I was getting some information that I just wasn't ready to comprehend or you, process. You, I think what you mean is you felt a bit voyeuristic, but like involuntarily oh, yeah. voyeuristic, you know? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people got from it. And, and just to kind of give you a context, you know, I remember watching this movie before 9-11. And then after 9-11... That event, you know, I'm sure it had the same impact on many people's lives. 9-11 really made me re-examine everything I believed in and question a lot of things. Of course. And I began to see things like this movie in a different light, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, I heard of uh, Bohemian Grove and some photos from a, a 1972 Rothschild dinner party where everybody was dressed very weird, almost like in, you see in this film. Eyes wide shut. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is that it also kind of opened my ears, and I began to notice things that I don't think I had I, I would have noticed otherwise. And I'm going to share two quick stories with the folks at home before we we uh, introduce our guest. This is a true story. I had a good friend who was uh, going out of town, and he needed to leave his car somewhere, you know, while he was gone, just because you know it was a nice car. He didn't want it to just be sitting out on you know yeah. uh, on the street. So he asked me if I would drive my car behind his to this place in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he would then drop off the car and we would drive back together. And I remember we dropped off the car at this very fancy uh, gated community, you know. So my friend went, you know, dropped off the car. And on the way back as we're driving, 
he begins to tell me that his friend who lived in this gated community uh, had told them that on the weekends, everybody that lived in this community would have a, a party, you know, at one of the houses in this community. And they mm -hmm. would, it basically sounded like, you know, there it would be some kind of like spouse swap type of thing, but mm -hmm. they would mm -hmm. just, you know, kind of be, you know, do some Happens funny a lot things. Nowadays, about it. Yeah. yeah. And he was basically inviting my friend and his girlfriend to partake in it. And <laughs> wow. obviously when he told me this as we were driving back, the first thing that came to mind was like, eyes wide shut, right? Of course, of course. Then yeah. uh, I think a little bit before that, um, I was talking to another friend of mine and I was living in Orange County at the time. And there was a, a little local newspaper. I can't remember the name. I was, I've been trying to remember all day. I can't remember what it was called. But it was a, a small local newspaper where they would give you like the news that would go on there would be, you know, oh, somebody was arrested, attempted to shoplift at a liquor store. Right. It was like a very small little newspaper. Mm -hmm. Well, in this little newspaper, um, my friend came across a story about the cops responding to a call in Anaheim Hills where apparently they found a kid. I can't remember the age. I'm going to guesstimate it. I think it was somewhere around nine years old. But apparently he had died of asphyxiation. And the way they found him is I guess he had plastic wrapped all around him. Mm -hmm. And my friend begins to tell me this story that apparently there were rumors going around that in Anaheim Hills, some of the, like, you know, the folks up there, they were doing some really weird, like, sex type Ritual rituals stuff. with you know involving mm -hmm. their kids and you know again my head went straight back to why it's white shut so as you can tell this was a film that really set me on a certain path obviously you know i've looked into uh 2001 space odyssey and all these other things that kubrick did and yeah i believe that there is something more there if you dig you will find it but you know what i'm gonna shut up and i'm gonna let genevieve introduce tonight's guest so why don't you tell us a little bit about mr Jay Dyer. Jay Dyer is essentially the go-to name when it comes to all things esoteric in the scene of Hollywood movies. Um, Mr. Dyer is a writer and researcher from the south of US with a BA in philosophy. His website jaysanalysis.com has grown to become one of the premier sites on the net integrating both philosophy and film. The website showcases his talents. His graduate work focused on the interplay of film, geopolitics, espionage, and psychological warfare. Jay is also a public speaker, lecturer, and comedian, as well as author, of course, of the popular esoteric Hollywood, Sex, Cults, and Symbols in Film. He also runs a podcast by the name of Jay's Analysis Podcast, Esoteric Hollywood. Furthermore, he's a regular contributor to 21st Century Wire, Soul of the East, and the Espionage History Archive. To date, Jay has authored hundreds of articles already read by millions in just the past few years. And really with that, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Jay Dyer onto West of the Rockies. Jay, can you hear us okay? Yeah, I'm here. How are you? We're doing great. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us tonight and discuss really this fascinating, fascinating film that is uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Let me start asking you, how did you um, come across this movie? Were you already a Kubrick fan or was this something that you kind of watched one day and decided that, you know what, it requires some research because there's a lot going on here? I was a high schooler in the 90s, so I didn't really know what was going on in a lot of the high school, a lot of the films that I watched when I was in high school. So a lot of the David Lynch films, a lot of the Kubrick films stand out because I remember, uh, I think 1999 that Eyes Wide Shut came out. I, I was confused as to what is going on in this film. 
and uh, I felt the same way in David Lynch's 90s movies, you know, like Wild at Heart or uh, Lost Highway. Right. And I started noticing, you know, you would see themes in these films. So by the time that I got to college and then into just my personal research with philosophy, you know, the realms of the esoteric, I started noticing a lot of stuff coalescing. And uh, of course, I saw, you know, Jay Wiedner's films and all that. But I'd already, I'm not, I'm not dissing Jay Wiedner. I think it's really good. But I had done similar analyses prior to that of my own of 2001 and Advice by Shut. And uh, it really just started to coalesce over time. You start to notice. I guess through your own process of philosophical reflection and journey, you start to see, you know, what these symbols mean, what they're trying to communicate, these different directors, and what, you know, what's going on in the background of Hollywood. And I think that there's no better preeminent example than Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. To me, I always had the feeling that Kubrick was trying to tell us more, but not using words, obviously. And he was a, a guy that was all about the, the, the symbolism, it seems, uh, in a lot of his movies. What are some of the themes that you find across some of Kubrick's films that, that go beyond Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, that's a good question. There's quite a few. One of those is, of course, class warfare. Uh, Kubrick, uh, as I understand, a kind of typical sort of anti-establishment, left progressive perspective. So you'll see a lot of class warfare, you'll see a lot of uh, picturing of the American elite as kind of this decadent, degenerate uh, class of persons that really oppress those under them. So I would say that Kubrick probably has some kind of a general Marxist framework that kind of comes out of the films that he directed or was involved in uh, you know, Spartacus to some degree, if I recall, uh, and that was actually a bunch of the people that were supposedly on the blacklist back in the period when uh, the FBI was supposedly involved in fingering a bunch of you know, Hollywood top people. And I think a lot of that was actually stagecraft, too. I think some of those people were playing roles to hype up the Cold War. Uh, so my take on the Cold War and all that was that it was kind of political theater. But at the same time, you know, so Kubrick likes this idea of Spartacus. And the reason Spartacus matters is because if you look at Adam Weishaupt at the Bavarian Illuminati, they would utilize these terms his name like Spartacus, right? Spartacus Weishaupt. So Spartacus, the Spartacus Union of the Weimar Republic, for example, that became kind of a, a code name for persons who believed in that kind of ideology. So on the one on one level, Kubrick is, I think, seeing over time what what was actually at the top of the pyramid for either the right or the left, and that's these people that we're talking about. That you know what we might call the Illuminati or whatever term we want to use globalists, the oligarchs, the power elite. And then what we've seen in other films, uh, such as Barry Lyndon by Kubrick or The Shining, these all have the same theme of mind control, trauma-based mind control, pedophilia, alternate personalities even with Danny in The Shining. Uh, I guess Tony is his alternate spirit person, right? <laughs> you recall, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. It's like, yeah, his little but, fingerprint. So, Although that sounds kind yeah, of wrong when you say the dude, fingerprint. Right, <laughs> dude. But, uh, so that's what we see in that. That's what comes to mind. I mean, obviously, you can find a lot more teams if you mm -hmm. really wanted to be deeper into, you know, the whole Kubrick canon, um, you know, all the way back to what Killer's Kiss and things like that. But usually you're dealing with uh, the establishment oppressing. And then I think by the time of his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, he's saying, oh, actually, what you think might be this anti-establishment cult or movement that might be considered leftist or progressive, you know, some sort of sex cult or some sort of 
you know, Hollywood the elite or whatever, that, that's actually part of the same establishment. So mm-hmm. I think that's what's so astonishing about Eyes Wide Shut is what it says about what really goes on. And mm-hmm. there's you know, numerous books, numerous journalists have done research exposing stories by Dave McGowan and Program to Kill, right, where you have revelation the actual examples of what you see in Eyes Wide Shut, the Dutro affair, and those actually tend to be much more extreme than what even what Kubrick showed us. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you something, because this is a, a question I've always asked myself about Kubrick. In your opinion, do you think Kubrick uh, attended some of these type of events, and that's why maybe they look so real and almost, as Genevieve mentioned earlier, voyeuristic? Because it, it, I almost feel like I'm watching something I'm not supposed to, uh, mm-hmm. particularly on, during the, the, the mass ball scene. Yeah. Uh, but do you think that Kubrick was exposed to all of these things, or do you think he has read a few books on it? Or what's your take on that? I've read some books on Kubrick and his life and his uh, work film analysis and so forth. And I don't know of any direct evidence to prove that, but mm-hmm. uh, I think that you can surmise reasonably that that's probably the case. I don't, I don't know that he attended or was involved in that, but he's saying, you know, to people like Bill Harford in the film, the Tom Cruise character, mm-hmm. you know, these are people that feel like they're at the top of the totem pole, right? You're, he's a, a prominent New York doctor. Right. His wife is, what is she, an art? critic or, or Art dealer, artist or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in other words, they, they kind of think they're at the top of the pyramid and they realize, oh, actually, there's a whole other level of, of wealth above me and that's the real power structure. And so I think that Kubrick being a director who, you know, didn't come from money, mm-hmm. uh, he discovered that that's what was above him. So even if you, you know, you're a A-list hotshot director or actor, you find out that, oh, actually, there's billionaires and trillionaires out there, right? And then, that's who really runs the show. So right. I, I don't know if he was a part of any of that, but uh, Vivian Kubrick's daughter, you know, has talked about in interviews that the CIA would come and, and talk to Kubrick about the movies, the Air Force, and NASA. So he was certainly moving in those circles, but you know, as to what his personal tastes were, I, I don't have any any knowledge. But uh, Vivian seems to you know talk about uh, truths that were going on in the background here and there. Before we start breaking down the plot, I want to talk a little bit about the production of this movie because it's almost like the story about the production is is, it's just as fascinating as as the movie itself. Guinness uh, World Records recognized Icewide Shut as the longest constant movie shoot for over 15 months and a period that included an unbroken shoot of 46 weeks. So that gives us an insight into Kubrick's um, mind and how he went about filming and the type of perfectionist that that he was. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he took a lot of criticism for when the movie first came out was his choice of uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman for the starring roles. A lot of people felt like they were too, uh, you know, not not very, I don't know, animated, I guess would be the word. However, I feel like they almost are meant to play those roles. What is yes. your take on that, on using Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman? And maybe if you can, uh, we all know about the controversy of Scientology and Tom Cruise. Did, did that at any point play a role in this whole uh, production? It certainly it certainly could. And if uh, Vivian is right that the CIA you know, would talk to Kubrick at time, visited him about the scripts and so forth, production, then it stands to reason that you know, the CIA is also in the background of Scientology. So 
I've done some interviews with a friend of mine, Mark Packard. He's done a lot of research into this field. And he talks about that and has done articles on that as well. And that there is definitely in the background of uh, L. Ron Hubbard and, and Crowley, right? He's running in all those right. circles. You also have uh, Western Intelligence Agency, British mm-hmm. Intelligence, yeah, and so forth. So that's definitely in the background. And I think it's, again, a, a very reasonable thesis to assume that, you know, Tom, Tom Cruise, I, I believe that in these big A-list roles, uh, people are chosen for those roles for a reason. And a lot of times it actually ties into their personal lives or at least what we know from tabloid media about their personal lives. But a lot of that is actually concocted and made up in PR and things like this too. So at that time, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were actually having, you know, marriage troubles. I remember that being in the news and on tabloids. And so I, I don't doubt that, you know, Kubert chose them for a reason. So the bridge between reality and fiction is a big part of this. And I think that and one of the goals of Hollywood is to fill in the gaps and give us a worldview, right? And so there's a reason why reality and fiction are constantly blended. So if you look at David Lynch or Kubrick, they're directors who are very influenced by surrealism. And surrealism is, you know, this artistic group that's all about the dream state and that the there's a seamless blend between the waking state and the dream state, right? There's no, there's no difference between yeah. the two. Yeah. And so, that's what's going on in Eyes Wide Shut. It's specifically called Awake Brain, right? And that's what Arthur Schnitzler, who uh, wrote the novel, uh, wrote it as a waking dream. Yeah. And that theme comes up quite a bit. And so to tie this back into Scientology, when Nicole Kidman has her dream, she was having fantasies of this naval guy. Yeah. And it's just very curious that Scientology has that level of sea org, that, uh, mm-hmm. that sort of that upper crust, that... Uh, L. Ron Hubbard created, uh, you know, which is this pseudo Navy, like his own private Navy. <laughs> and that's what she, you know, she just happened to be in a movie with Tom Cruise where she's having the fantasy of, uh, of a naval man of some sort. But so anyway, yeah, that's, uh, I think that that is kind of a hint at what's going on. Um, I'm really intrigued and impressed by your view of the movie as essentially an initiation for the viewer into this right. realm of, let's say, the underworld. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think a lot of films do this. Mm-hmm. And I think 2001 tries to do that. I think Eyes Watch Shot tries to do that. I think there's some other films that are kind of big. Ritual workings is really what I would call them. And if you have that kind of perspective where you view artwork as a kind of ritual, yeah. uh, and many, many directors and artists do, they see it as a way of, uh, you know, manifesting their will and intention into reality and then and then affecting, you know, the mass mind and so forth. And this is how it this ties into psychological warfare as well, because you can see how those two perspectives uh, pretty much have the same end goal. What I'd say Eyes Wide Shut to be is the title itself gives it away. It's you, the audience, your eyes are wide shut, even as you're watching this. And you know how many millions of people watched that film over the years, even though it wasn't a great box office success, it was kind of misunderstood and people didn't know what's going on. Uh, when you watch the film upon reflection, you know, if you have some insight into this kind of stuff, research it, you start to see that, you know, that, as we said, there's a lot deeper stuff going on. And I think that the main deeper thing that's going on is that it's intended to be a kind of, like you said, initiation ritual. So 
film as ritual is the first chapter in my book, uh, Esoteric Hollywood. And that's kind of my thesis there. That's what I'm going with. And I use Eyes Wide Shut as my first primary example of that. And so what does that mean? Well, if you think about, I guess the easiest way would be kind of what the idea of shamanism is or a shamanic journey is that, you know, you take a person as a shaman. It's supposed to lead you into, you know, the alternate world, spiritual realms, so forth, the psychosphere. And then you come back from this, you know, out-of-body experience or drug experience or whatever uh, form of meditation or whatever. And you come back and you are intended to be, you know, enlightened. You're supposed to be on the other side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what Kubrick's doing is he's doing a kind of version of that where he's uh, maybe not so much in the shamanic tradition as maybe something more probabilistic. He's saying, I can show you how the system works and none of you are going to get it, or at least most of you, probably 95% of you are not going to get it. You're going to see it as just this movie and you're going to have a, a voyeuristic fetish about looking into the lives of A-list stars and seeing their sex life, all this stuff. And what it's really about is a reflection. That's why mirrors are constantly seen in the film. It's a reflection of the viewer. It's, it's saying something to the viewer. It's that you don't know. You are the profane. You're on the outer portico of the temple. You don't get what's actually going on. This is how the world really works. You're like Bill Harper. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to reveal this to you. And your eyes are either going to be open or they're going to be wide shut. Jay, let me ask you one question. Um, I remember reading about this and, and thinking it was really interesting that uh, Kubrick uh, had a fear of flying. And for this reason, Eyes Wide Shut, although it takes place in New York City, was actually filmed in England. And, uh, you know, a lot of people complained about that. However, do you have any backstory as to why he developed this fear of flying? And does it have anything to do um, maybe with something a little bit more nefarious? areas than just a, a simple fear of flying. But a lot of prominent people, especially if you're senators who might be investigating something, right? I mean, how many senators' planes have blown up, right? True, Quite a few. True. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so that's kind of a natural paranoia, I guess, if you reach a certain level of uh, stardom or, or whatever. So that's entirely possible. I, I actually didn't know that about Kubrick. I, did, yeah. I didn't know he had a fear of flying, but um, it, it makes sense. And he doesn't come off as somebody exceedingly paranoid, although there are whispers that in his latter days he, he was perhaps worried about this film. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of speculation and theories about the film itself being released at a certain time. I think that that's probably true in a numerological sense. Um, I also think that, well, for example, 2001, well, what happens? 2001, 9-11, right? Uh, I don't think that was by accident, but, you know, could uh, Kubrick have brought people the wrong way? Absolutely. Uh, I just listened mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, an interview with some comedians on uh, Mark Barron's podcast that David Spade was talking about how his assistant uh, tried to kill him. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you never know, right? I mean, Phil Hartman, comedian, right? SNL. Yeah. Yeah, that's entirely possible. You, you know, when you're dealing with uh, elite cartels, which is, I think, pretty much what you're dealing with here. You know, you're kind of uh, running in a, a dangerous crowd. It seems like he was definitely uh, surrounded by some very, very uh, scary people, really. And that was the thing about the movie, to me, at least. It was a very scary movie. There were so many times where I found myself kind of sweating and getting really tense. Now, obviously, you know, we can't talk about Kubrick and conspiracies without touching on the Kubrick help fake the moon landings. Before we go any further, what is your take on that theory? I agree with Jay Wiedner that 
it, there's a good evidence to suggest that Kubrick is a very likely candidate for uh, who might have done that. I do believe that what we're shown in the Apollo missions is fake. I don't believe that those are real images, uh, but for numerous reasons, uh, Dave McGowan's book on NASA, I think, is very good. Uh, but aside from that, the there's a, a case, I think, to be made for Lookout Mountain Studios in Laurel Canyon as the site for where it could have been staged because that was the Air Force's secret film studio that was specifically used to create propaganda film and mm-hmm. uh, who knows what else. And so actually, it's actually now declassified that the atomic explosions that we've seen, those were actually created at Lookout Mountain Studios. So I think oh, that's wow. probably a better bet than Disney soundstage or something, although that's entirely possible. But uh, if you read, uh, you know, Dave McGowan's book, uh, Weird Scenes at the Canyon, he goes into some length about this. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's Walt Disney, it's Cary Grant, it's uh, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, they all had access to this Lookout Mountain video in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. And uh, I think that that makes sense as to a good contender. So if you're talking about the process of what Kubrick's doing is that there was a certain lens the, uh, it starts with the D, I forget, but uh, the CIA actually, or, excuse me, the Air Force allowed him to use this, you know, outrageous, like, billion-dollar lens to film stuff for 2001, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it makes sense to me that, you know, if they're going to let him use this special lens, then he's got to go along with things, and I think that was part of it. Uh, you can find articles on the lens that was yeah. used. Uh, I go into that in my book, but the process of Front screen projection uses all these little tiny beads that are kind of taped together on a big screen. And what you can do is uh, create uh, the impression of a vast expanse, kind of a depth, while in the, in the foreground you have, you know, something very simple like, you know, three or four monkeys or guys in monkey suits and, and some, uh, some hills. And then you've got the impression of you know, some vast uh, expanse. And uh, a lot of people pointed out that what you see in a lot of the, the moon imagery does seem to look like the background is utilizing these these tiny beads and uh, the tape that might have been used to hold the beads together, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what you're seeing in the anomalies of the of the, uh, the moon images. I think that's very very plausible. I think that makes a lot of sense. But I mean, there's like a million other things about the Apollo missions that really I think call it out as preposterous. Other than that, I mean, there's, you know, there's just a mountain of, of things that, that yeah. don't make any sense. Like why do why do we not go back? Of course. And, uh, you know, all the defenders of NASA say, well, there's just nothing there. Uh, we know all that we know. It's just a bunch of dust, so we don't need to go back to the moon. <laughs> but, of course, this was like the biggest deal in the 60s. And I, I really think that it's more of a, for the Cold War psyop, that was what the, the moon was about, uh, propping up the mythology of America. And I think that maybe, if, you know, since Kubrick was probably involved in that for a time, if he did shoot this footage, you know, he probably sick of that, given all of his criticism of the American system and American imperialism and, and all this in his films, he probably felt like it was kind of ridiculous. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know? And he, whether he shot it or not, or some other director or the Air Force did it or whoever, uh, you know, it, it's the same principles that work here that well, artists don't like to be, you know, have their hands tied. They want to be able to freely do the art that they want to do. And if you're working for the system, you can't do that. They don't let you do that. You have yeah. to do what they want you to do, and they probably baited him with, you know, this this uh, sight or camera. I forget the term, something like that. This million dollar lens that he was allowed to use or something. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned, well, not funny, it's actually, uh, you know, on a, on a somber note, I guess. You mentioned the book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. We actually were uh, working on uh, scheduling uh, Mr. Uh, David McCowan to be on the show, and unfortunately he passed away before that could happen. Yeah. Uh, but I, I started reading his book, and it, it was a really interesting read. I, I recommend people check that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's go back to Eyes Wide Shut, because obviously we could do the rest of the show just on whether Kubrick faked the moon landing. And, and you know, a lot of people obviously point to to some of his films. And like you said, you know, artists like to uh, take uh, credit for their work. And it seems that's what Kubrick was trying to do in his films, uh, according to some of the people that have, re you know, looked into this and researched the, the film. But talking about Eyes Wide Shut, uh, why don't we start looking at, at the plot of this story? Because, you know, a lot of people blame the movie for being too slow or, you know, they felt like there were a lot of unnecessary shots. But as we have established, Kubrick was just a perfectionist. Uh, I mean, in my opinion, right. a, a true artist. One of the first things I noticed when I, I watched the movie was just these vivid, vivid colors, you know, and it seems that every time, uh, so stark. Yeah. It seems every time, uh, um, Tom Cruise's character, uh, Dr. Hartford's on the scene, you have like this very bright blue and you see these cold colors in contrast with, uh, with these warm colors. And it's almost like it's creating a dichotomy in the, in the film. Is it, am I right. reading too much into it or what's going on with the cinematography of this movie? No, absolutely not. You're absolutely not reading too much into it. You're reading it correctly because, I mean, color and art direction is a huge part of the film, obviously. So, uh, you know, if you watch any DVD commentaries, they'll, they'll generally drift off into talking about the technical aspects of the film and they'll always go into that kind of stuff. And every now and then you'll get people who are insightful in the commentaries actually explaining, you know, the, the symbolism. Uh, I think uh, Roger Ebert's commentary, for example, on Orson Welles' Citizen Kane is very good for that. He actually talks about a lot of the mythology, which you don't usually get that. Unfortunately, you usually get the technical, boring stuff, but mm -hmm. that shows that what you're saying is right. I mean, there's absolutely forethought into choosing which color scheme you're going to use. And colors have a lot of meaning and a lot of symbolism. I mean, obviously, our, our world itself is color, uh, color magic a big part of everything and mm. you, know, you read somebody like Anton LaVey he talks about color schemes and how this can have an effect on the psyche of those around you this gets into a branch of philosophy it's called semiotics which is the study of symbols which is something I dealt with quite a bit in my undergrad and graduate work uh, and my thesis itself was actually about semiotics so how can you uh, couple together images and symbols in a certain way to achieve the most uh, efficacious effect, right? And that's what the artist wants to do. That's what film is intended to do. And you're absolutely right. So why the reds and the blues? Well, you're right. The, first of all, those, you know, are con those in a way contrast. Uh, not necessarily they're, they're next to each other on the color wheel or, or relatively close. I guess you get violet out of that. But uh, in a way, they can, they can contrast by, you know, what tone you use of those colors. And in that regard, I think that, you know, red is obviously has a lot of significance for bars, for blood, sacrifice, sex, or lust, uh, right? And blue is very much this dream state. It's, mm. uh, you know, Uranus. It's the, the abyss. It's water, mm. right? These are all kind of fluid uh, ideas that give us the impression of free thought, uh, free-flowing consciousness, the dream state. And I think that that's what the, the contrast of those colors, because the film is, is partly about 
it is partly about the sex lives. It is partly Freudian. They do bring in Freudian analysis. Uh, mm-hmm. Any of the critics that you read who are, are actual film critics that deal with this, this film will say, you know, obviously Cooper just dealing with Freudian imagery. Uh, he's dealing with existentialism as well with Jean-Paul Sartre and all the math. One of, that's one of the key components of Sparks' philosophy is that we all wear a mask and we're all kind of hiding behind the roles that we live out in society. Mm-hmm. And uh, that ties into, the, 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 I guess you could, you could call it color magic, you know, and that's part, partly why I think Kubrick is, in a way, uh, kind of working in a, in a kind of probabilistic scheme. Uh, and that you, you, you can really see that in 2001 for sure with mm-hmm. the different stages of the planetary uh, process that Bowman goes through as he exits the, the galaxy and then as he goes into the time warp, you know, Stargate or whatever, he's, he sees this, uh, he sees the entire color spectrum, he sees seven diamonds. And, uh, so, you know, you got Roy G. Biv, you've got, you've got the, the, the fabric of reality itself, which is light and sound, or light and sound together vibrating at a certain frequency. I'm sure we've heard this kind of stuff. That's all I think true. And so, uh, I think that's why Cooper is doing that. He's very keenly aware of these things and he was aware of it back when he made 2001. And so I don't think he shed any of that by the time he did uh, Eyes Wide Shut. And, yeah, you, you could spend, and there's people who have written old books just on Eyes Wide Shut and you're know, picking apart the probabilistic themes, picking apart the, the, the color schemes, the color magic and all of that. But I think that that's accurate. It's true. And let me ask you about one of the scenes in, in the, uh, early in the movie. And this happens at Siegler's, uh, Christmas party. Tom Cruise gets pulled away from the, the two young ladies, uh, who, you know, are flirting with him. They take him to, to a, a very, very fancy bathroom. I mean, that bathroom is the size of my apartment. Uh, and inside <laughs> he finds Siegler, the, the, the gentleman throwing the party, along with this very beautiful, uh, young lady who's, uh, uh passed out in, in the bathroom. What struck me about that scene, obviously, you know, Sigler was, you know, a married man. It's a Christmas party, you know, more or less what you consider like a family type of party. Yet he's, he's up there in, in this bathroom with, with this, uh, this young lady who apparently had done uh, enough drugs to get her in that condition. Now, the reason why that scene struck me is because what could possibly be happening. You know, I've heard a lot about, for example, in the case of the Manson family, you know, I, I remember, uh, uh, hearing some of like the, the early followers of Manson saying that they remember him passing out LSD to everyone, yet he was always sober and in control. And that's something that we see in this room. Sigler is, uh, totally sober, visibly a bit upset that this girl, you know, passed out. And, uh, and the other thing that struck me is the fact that Tom Cruise doesn't really act surprised. I mean, even after the whole thing is said and done, he <laughs> maintains this very, uh, you know, aura of calm and like, yep, just, uh, you know, just almost like another house call. What's going on in that scene? Uh, can you tell me a little bit your take on that? Yeah, my take on that, on that scene is that, uh, this immediately, uh, follows the scene where both of them have been uh, propositioned, if I recall. And so Anton, uh, uh, Sandor Sabas has uh, tried to seduce uh, mm-hmm. uh, Alice Hartford by mm-hmm. citing Ovid in his book on seducing married persons. Uh, this doesn't succeed, although she seems a little bit interested in it. Two girls who are quite attractive 
uh, and they actually identified themselves as Winters, Nuala Winter. The two of them tried to seduce Tom Cruise, and he says, uh, no, I, well, I've got to go attend to this, uh, you know, disturbance. And that's, so this really kind of kicks off the large scale, it's almost like they're crisis actors in a way, <laughs> right? So, I mean, not exactly, but they're all, I believe, uh, playing a role in this theater, in this stagecraft, mm-hmm. right? They're all, or we might call it dramaturgy, which is a sociological term that, that's applicable here. So they're playing these roles. And it's all, I believe, staged and set up. Every single part is leading Tom Cruise down this road, uh, as well as, I guess you could argue, Alice, too, uh, unless you think that Alice is part of it all along. But that's a different, that's a different debatable question. So when they're in the, ba- uh, the bathroom, you'll notice that there is a painting on the wall uh, above the beauty queen who's uh, supposedly OD'd, mm-hmm. and it's, it looks just like her. So it's a red-haired woman who's nude, like laid out, strewn about, strewn out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right over her. Right. And we get the impression that, oh wait a minute, well that's an odd coincidence or synchronicity, right? Yeah, that's weird. So that's it seems to be planned. Um, and I don't, I, I don't, I think Tom Cruise is a little unscathed, or or he's not surprised because it's his you know, upper crust buddy who's invited him to this thing, and yeah. so he's thinking, well. I need to cover for him. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say too much, but the beauty queen, uh, I think is actually OD'd, but I think that it's, it's, it is still planned. And the fact that the painting is above her in the same pose shows that. And this is what leads him down the path of, you know, really questioning his marriage, questioning his, uh, his sexual situation, sexual frustrations. Uh, and so this is kind of the kickoff event, uh, because the proposition for him to have a threesome did, didn't go through, uh, and they lead him down this other path. And that's my take on it, uh, just off the top. You know, um, another thing that happens, I, I think, uh, almost, uh, parallel as, as, as Dr. Hartford is in the, uh, in the bathroom taking, you know, care of this girl. And, uh, Genevieve, you actually pointed this out. It's when, uh, mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman's character, uh, Alice is, uh, talking to, uh, uh Sandor Stavos. There you go. He starts, uh, you know, kind of talking about these, uh, collection of bronzes and things like that. And Genevieve was saying, you know, it sounds almost like mind control triggers. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounded like he was like trying to just key in those words. Yeah, it's there. Uh, I'm guessing we're going to take a, a quick break. So, uh, we'll, we'll pick up the conversation on the other side, but really quick. Uh, are we seeing, are, are there hints of, of this mind control MK ultra type programming? Yeah, in this non-uptide programming. Yes, there are. And this will be, I think, explicitly shown with the scene with Lily Sobieski, who is, uh, Rada Serbija is the, is Milich. He plays Milich at the costume shop and he's, Hinting oh, yeah. out who he says is his daughter. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's where exactly where it's going to be led. You're right. Okay, cool. Jay, if you'd be so kind, just to hang on the line while we take a, a break. We're going to play some tunes and uh, run some station IDs. Is that cool? Okay. We're going to be right back with Jay. And real quick, uh, here's a, it's a, a little bit of a, of a fun fact, if you will. Nicole Kidman was, uh, I actually read this uh, the other day, believe it or not. I read from time to time. <laughs> As Kidman was uh, nervous about doing the nude scenes, Kubrick stated that she could bring music to liven up. When Kidman brought a Chris Isaac CD, Kubrick approved it, 
and incorporated Isaac's song, Baby Did a Bad, Bad Thing, to both an early romantic embrace of Bill and Alice in the film's trailer. So we're going to go oh, to wow. our break, yeah, with this track that, you know, we played a few times on this show. That's a little, yeah, uh, you know, my little nod to this movie that's definitely one of my favorites. So enjoy this track. <laughs> West of the Rock is coming right back. We're uh, just getting to the thick of it with uh, uh, Jay Dyer. And, you know, we're talking Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick, MK Ultra, really, Mind Control. Really, oh, deep man. stuff. Can't wait to get back from the break. So enjoy this one. West of the Rockies is coming right up in just a few. West of the Rockies. With Frank. Open, open. Your, your, your mind. And we are back to uh, the second hour, West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. Boy, this this show is it's getting crazy by the minute. It's getting crazy by the minute. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. Check out the website, WOTRradio.com. And don't forget to subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and all those little tune-in. We're actually broadcasting Everywhere. on tune-in right Everywhere. now, so shout out to everyone listening on tune-in. I'm joined, as always, by Genevieve. You can find her on Twitter at Genevieve Uway. And on this station, Thursday nights, 8 p.m., hosting her very own show, No Added Flavors. Phone, mm -hmm, fun facts, mm -hmm. jokes, music, and a whole lot more. Here's, uh, here's something really cool. Um, I found this actually yesterday while uh, finalizing some of my notes for today. There was a Stanley Kubrick exhibit here in L.A., I think, in 2013, like the summer of 2013. Yeah. yeah. I went twice. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> because it was, I, as a, as a Kubrick fan, again, course, you know, I went course. and yeah, I, I, it was amazing. They had a, a lot of cool props. They had some of the masks that they used in Eyes Wide Shut, as well as other props from, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey, Spartacus, Clockwork Orange, uh, The Shining. They had the typewriter. You know, a, a little, with uh, anecdote. All work and no I, play. I actually stumbled across the shop in Venice when I visited when oh, I was really? younger. Yeah. I stumbled what? across a little costume mask shop and it said, um, it had a little like pane or so, like uh -huh. a, a little sign in the front window saying, um, official provider of costume masks mm -hmm. for the Eyes Wide Shut movie. Wow. So I went in there and I bought myself a mask nice. from from the the actual makers of those costumes. And then you went to a to a spooky mansion. <laughs> no, but oh. I I do still have that mask. You know that story would have been a lot more interesting. I do still have you... that mask and I do revere it very highly. Yeah, no, I know you do. You've told me about that mask, and I'm obviously uh, seething with jealousy because I wish I had one from like the same shop. But next to that, the next best thing. If you're in California or heck in the U.S., because this this exhibit left Southern California and, you know, it's been traveling around the world. Well, it's going to be back in California. This time it's going to be in San Francisco at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Sorry, let me say that again. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, June 30th until October 30th, 2016. So, uh, yeah, check out the website, stanleykubrick.de. I believe that's Deutschland, right? That's the, uh, yep. that's a, right? My, my country. 
<laughs> yeah, so definitely check it out if you if you get a chance. I'm really considering doing a little road trip to San Francisco just to kind of see it again. As uh, I mentioned, our guest tonight is uh, Mr. Uh, Jay Dare of uh, Jay's Analysis, and uh, we're really excited to have him. Um, let me bring him back into the conversation. Uh, Jay, when we went to the uh, to the break, uh, you know, I played a. To, this is how I I will also sneak in my back announcing. <laughs> we. We heard some uh, 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 some uh, Chris Isaac from the Ice White Shut soundtrack, followed by uh, David Bowie, and a song from his uh, album Outside, and it was also in one of my favorite movies, Seven. What can you tell me about Bowie? I mean, we we lost Bowie at the beginning of the year, quite an influential artist, but obviously his name also popped up in uh, in topics such as these. Uh, what are your thoughts on Bowie? Well, I was going to tell you a quick story before we moved on to that. I- I was actually invited to uh, an Eyes Wide Shut style party at a, at a giant mansion. Oh, wow. And it was pretty, wow. pretty late. It was late in the hour, and the only costume that I could find was a cape with a Bill Cosby face. <laughs> and so when I, when, I, when I showed up, it didn't go well. All the women ran away. So I just kind of backfired. But that was the only, it was the only mask. I felt, I felt like Bill Harford, but even in a worse I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, but uh, anyway, that was a good one. I, so <laughs> Bowie, um, Bowie's a weird guy, isn't he? Right? I yeah. can actually do a Bowie impersonation, but but when I do it, everybody gets mad. Oh, uh, we, we will love to hear it. I mean, no, <laughs> we won't take any offense. Definitely. Well, maybe here in a bit, but okay. what I was maybe thinking like- was, <laughs> if you watch uh, one of the first actual articles I did at my website was an analysis of Labyrinth. Oh wow! Uh, and oh, wow. now that that might sound a little silly, but Actually, if you go and watch this, as well as Jim Henson's Dark Crystal, you'll notice that these are actually very esoteric films. And so yeah, those yeah. have actually been two of my most popular analyses over the last four or five years. So um, those have had multitudes of hits. And if you check those out, I went to some pretty deep Jungian-style analysis, especially with uh, Labyrinth, because I think there's a lot going on there, as well as some of the same elements of mind control um, programming and you know a lot of that goes on at the subconscious level and if you know you got David Bowie Biscuit playing the witch there right he's, he's this witchy character yeah and uh, a, a lot a lot can be plumbed from there you might not want to go into Labyrinth but that's my I always whenever somebody brings up Bowie the first thing I think of is is uh, spandex and <laughs> big flowing hair like that right. big puff of hair that he has I remember that movie I actually yeah that was another another weird movie that was almost disguised as a family yeah, kid yeah, friendly like movie. Yeah, deceivingly fairy tale esque, yeah. but not really that. Yeah, and at then all. yeah, there's some very dark stuff under yeah, all of yeah. that. But uh, it is, yeah, it, it actually is. Yeah, uh, actually, if I do ever get invited to an Eyes Wide Shut orgy, I, I'm not going to take Bill Cosby mask. I'm going to wear the Bowie Labyrinth album. Oh, dude. that will be cool. That'll be a hit. That'll be a hit. <laughs> Um, make sure you send me an invite. Just give me the password. I'll show up. I'll be in a taxi. So just keep an eye out for me. But, uh, <laughs> let's go back to, uh, eyes wide shut here. Um, let's kind of move, move along with the plot of the movie. After, uh, you know, Bill finds Ziggler with this passed out prostitute, you know, he, you know, they go back home and in, in the, in the next scene, I believe, or, or maybe the, the scene after that, we find Dr. Hartford and his wife. You know, enjoying uh, some green, some of nature's goodness, if you will. And all the kids probably know what I'm talking about. But, uh, it's, uh, it, it kind of opens the, the door to this very awkward moment where 
it's 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 almost like you're listening in on an argument. They get into a very heated not fight, even not even quite an argument, just an awkward moment. Yeah, I and feel. it kind of sets Bill Hartford on this weird sexual quest. Correct? What was right. what was really Bill's motivation? I mean, was he really that? You know, that did his wife really get in his head? Is that what happened? Yeah, in a way, that's funny. So what this thing does that establishes. Bill's character as principally the one whose eyes are wide shut. Mm-hmm. And so he won't be honest. And that's what Alice presses him about whether he wanted to sleep with those good looking ladies. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, I would never do such a thing. Well, how, how could you think such a thing? Yeah, right. But, right. Uh, but of course up. he did. Yeah. And she calls him out on it. And so he, he's lying to himself wearing a mask, mm-hmm. the, the mask of lying. And it's, uh, so yeah. Speak, right. Uh, he's he's hiding behind this facade of uh, what he thinks is a appearance of morals, and she knows that he's lying, and he knows he's lying, and so but he won't admit that to himself or to her, and that kind of it's, as you said, it's like this domino effect that sets him on this causal chain of further down the rabbit hole, I guess you could say, and so he begins to think, well, maybe marriage isn't what I thought it was going to be. Uh, I, I, I feel trapped. I want to do something else. So he goes and he gets a call to the wealthy woman whose father has died. And she's a little bit older than him. And of course she propositions him and he says no. Uh, and this uh, is, I guess, intended to hype the tension of his sexual frustration. And so then he just sort of strolls about, right, just wandering. And this is where we have uh, the scene with Domino. Mm-hmm. And this is crucial in the plot narrative because Domino, I believe, was at the, or will be at the orgy. Uh, oh, and wow. she's part of the cult. This is why she later disappears in the film narrative. And one of the key indicators, of course, is that she's got uh, masks all over her wall. And right. these masks, I think, are foreshadowing what's going to happen later on in the film. Mm-hmm. And She's also got a curious collection of books, which are quite strange, I would say, for a prostitute. She's a very adept student of Carl Jung and sociology, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, which, you know, basically human psychology manipulation. So I think those are two key indicators that she's not what she's, she's playing a role. And I can't recall if I mentioned this in my Eyes Wide Shut analysis, but there's a film and book that's really good called The Magus mm-hmm. by John Fowles famous British novel, a kind of a classic of the 20th century, and uh, I recommend it. It's very wordy, it's pretty long, but it's very similar to the narrative of Eyes Wide Shut, where you have essentially a Greek billionaire who uses a bunch of people in his cult, you could say, to manipulate an unwitting dupe, uh, this uh, know-it-all uh, guy who's lying to himself. And so you get the same theme of basically billionaires and trillionaires who don't have anything better mm-hmm. to do than to... Uh, basically play with the world as a great stage or theater or chessboard. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm, I may be going too far off course here, but uh, yeah, you're, you're right that that's what sends him down this trail, leading him ultimately to Domino's uh, domicile, and that will lead him down the road to Nick Nightingale, his buddy from college, who explicitly gives him the password yeah. to the ritual. Yeah, and that is kind of strange, right? Because, I mean, uh, Nick Nightingale, 
had done that before. Uh, he says that he has, you know, attended these parties and he's got right. a sneak, you know, a quick look as, as to what goes on. And he almost, uh, just hands over the password without even trying to, you know, be discreet about it. So yeah, that right. was, that was right. really interesting. A quick note that I found, um, and again, just to kind of make an emphasis on, on Kubrick and, and, and his style of, of filming, or actually just his, uh, I don't know, his OCD when it came to filming. Uh, talk about Domino, the actress that plays Domino, her name is Vanessa Shaw, and uh, yes. she uh, was contracted for two weeks and ended up staying there for two months filming her scenes. So, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously Kubrick, I mean, her role was pretty small. I mean, it, but it, significant. it's also a cautionary tale, right? Because uh, it turns out that she has, you know... Uh, HIV and it's it's almost like he came very close it's to very to do significant. It. Yeah, yeah, so it, for a very small role, her 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 character actually has a, a pretty big impact on Doctor Hartford's uh, life. Now let's talk about this MK Ultra business that that seems to be going on when he goes to get his the the cloak and the mask and the tux and and the and the shopkeeper, his daughter, and tell us about that scene. What's going on that in that scene? Yeah, this scene is a big reveal about what's really happening. And so when Tom Cruise is kind of wandering about, he realizes that he wants to go to this thing, but he's got to have a costume. So the only costume shop that he can find is uh, Over the Rainbow, right? It's uh, curiously named, right? So we've got Wizard of Oz and we've got Alice, right? Alice Wonderland, wife. These themes are are explicitly there, which I think pretty clearly point to uh, you know, kind of classic archetypes of mind control and MKUltra. And there's a reason for that. That's because, of course, Lewis Carroll, the author of Alps of Wonderland, is known to be a, a pedophile. So, uh, you know, he had this fixation on, I guess, pre-pubescent girls. And it's not by accident that when Bill Harford enters Village's costume shop, uh, there are two Japanese, I guess, businessmen, presumably, uh, who I suspect are actually at the orgy as well, and they are wearing drag, and they're wanting to have their way with Milich's professed daughter, Lily Sobieski. And so she's underage, and this is the theme here of you know, kind of the, the pedo stuff, which uh, is a theme throughout, you know, as I said, Kubrick films. I, I argued this by Shining and Elf, that so that's what's happening to, uh, to Danny, uh, this is hinted that in Barry Lyndon as well. And so, yeah, it's pretty explicit. But it's not too hard to figure out what's going on in that scene. And I believe that it's tied into the cult. So, you know, Kubrick could show that, mm-hmm. but I think he's hinting at that through that oh. scene. And another another key indicator that you don't get unless you turn on the subtitle is that Lily Sobieski, when she whispers into Bill Harford's ear, when he's picking out a cloak, she says, you'll need an ermine cloak. Now, what does that mean? Well, ermine is the traditional garb of the aristocracy. Uh, It's a cloak that you wear if you are the noble class. Mm -hmm. And so that shows that she was there. She knows where he's going. She knows what kind of group of of persons he's going to be dealing with. And, of course, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when Bill gets there, the hierophant or the leader of this, this group, the guy who's wearing the sort of cardinal outfit sitting in the center of the magic circle of super babes, 
Yeah. Uh, he is, has a British accent. <laughs> That's not accidental, right? We're not in Britain. We're in, uh, at least in the film, we're supposed to be on the east coast of Juvet. Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. Upstate somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and here's who's this British lord type character who's, uh, you know, running his home. Well, uh, again, you need an ermine cloak to get into this affair, and an ermine cloak suggests nobility or royalty. It, it's funny because when you mentioned that, it just clicked because I always wondered. You know, how did he just happen to get the right outfit <laughs> for this thing? You know, I imagine if I would have yeah. shown up to, to a shop after hours and, and convinced the man to open up, the, the odds of getting the appropriate garments would have been pretty slim. And it's, and he literally gets it down to a T. So yeah, it's, it does seem like the young girl was privy <laughs> to where he was going and, yeah, and yeah. what exactly was she do. was. And that's because I believe that all of the people that he's interacting with that this has been orchestrated uh-huh. it's, it's orchestrated to lead him down a certain path yeah it's almost it's almost like a, a like a truman show type of scenario it's like everybody's in it, it yeah. except him right that's a great connection yeah but what does that tell us about alice because if we talk about tom cruise being you know having his eyes closed alice definitely has her eyes open because she's yes you know she's the one that, that seems to know what's going on at, at every step of the movie you know like right know if, right that's just women you know women now, tend to have an intuition i don't know if it's just that or are we literally being told that alice's character i mean does she represent something yeah that's a great point this is kind of a debatable point i think you could argue with different possibilities about her character now so there's a, a very interesting indicator when Bill comes home from some of his frustrated wandering and he comes into the kitchen and he looks at her at Alice and she's giving the daughter math lessons mm-hmm. and if you listen to the dialogue in that scene Bill's kind of standing there staring and listening and she sees him and she raises her voice a little bit so that he can hear it so she's explaining the math problem and she says okay well see these people this person has more money than this person. They have a lot more money, right? And so yeah. she looks at him and he looks at her. And this is after, you know, he's, I think he's been to, if I recall, it's after he's been to the orgy or, or right before. And that indicator is, is, I think, one of the good arguments that she is in on all this. She knows what's going on. Uh, and of course, obviously, when she has her so-called dream, right? Her dream is about what he went did. Right. <laughs> uh, He's either grown up in this situation of this cult and, and is a part of this. Uh, maybe she's been mind controlled, like the beauty queen at the beginning. She was brought into this, and this is this is the way that Bill is being brought in. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps she is intended to have some kind of clairvoyance where she kind of sees things on the, the, the you know unconscious archetypal level uh, or senses it. Maybe that's going on. Maybe all three. Uh, or there's the option, uh, you know, that she's also kind of being brought in down the guard path, so to speak, with him. Either of those are possible, I think, or argue, but I tend to lean towards thinking that she uh, is in on it. You know, honestly, it does, it does seem to be that way. Let's jump to what's easily, you know, my favorite, morbidly favorite, slash scariest part of, of the, of the movie. To me, I, I remember the first time I watched this movie, as I mentioned earlier, I felt like I was watching something I wasn't supposed to. And obviously, I'm talking about the mass ball or, you know, the, the orgy scene, if you will. One of the things that struck me about this is just how elaborate it is. It's not just a very simple, you know, 
uh, a quick scene and and you know it's definitely not about nudity it's not about you know showcasing the you know these beautiful women the message here seems to be quite a bit darker just to give a, a bit of a production background and i i was reading about this talking about kubrick's perfectionism and as the listeners could probably tell by now kubrick and perfectionism <laughs> seems to go hand in hand a lot but kubrick's perfectionism led him to oversee every visual element that would appear in a given frame, from props and furniture to the color of the walls and other objects. One such element were the masks used in the orgy, which were inspired by the masked carnival balls visited by the protagonists of the novel, obviously making reference to, to, the, to the original novel. That I believe the English translation was like a, a dream story. That was the, the title in English. But right. What can, what do we make about these masks? Because they are quite unique. I mean, I could probably draw them by memory. That's how big of an impression they made on me. What have you found while you researched this whole thing? What is the purpose of the masks in this type of ceremonies? You know, I'm sure people may have seen the pictures from the 1972 Rothschild yeah. uh, right. party, right? What's the purpose of these masks? Well, a lot of things could be said about this. There are a lot of resemblance to surrealist art as well. If you look at the artwork of Man Ray, who was involved in the, uh, it looks to be the, the Black Dahlia situation. Mm-hmm. If you've looked at that film or that story with George Cordell and his circles uh, amongst Hollywood elite, and the art of Man Ray and many of his, his buddy artists, it's that style. It's that 1972 Rothschild Ball style. And that style is partly surrealist, uh, partly abstract, so forth, and it's really, I think, intended to convey inversion in many ways. Man Ray, when he talked about all his art, it was all about basically anti-human, uh, basically sacrificing people, cutting their bodies up, and you know, displaying all this very bizarre stuff. And I, if I recall, he explicitly called himself Luciferian in some sense. So what I think is going on with the cult is that it seems to be just kind of a, a sex cult of sorts, Maybe some oblique reference to Crowley. I had a friend who's done a lot of research specifically on Eyes Wide Shut, and he says, uh, I don't know where he, he got this, so I can't confirm it, but, but that, uh, Kubrick wanted to do something Crowleyan, uh, in the, the music that was going to be done during the scene, and for some reason that didn't work out, so supposedly he chose uh, a Romanian Orthodox chant, and he, I believe, put it in reverse, uh, as the story goes. Now, so what that suggests is inversion, and of course, reversing things is a kind of a brilliant principle. And uh, you're basically, the, the idea here is that you're tapping into a dark side uh, with the intention of basically increasing your power, is the simplest way to put it, right? Yeah. Basic sorcery, basic black magic. Uh, and, but this is a kind of, you know, tantric sort of sex magic of sorts. Uh, and the... The masks, of course, also seem to signify anonymity, right? And so in the underground of this cult, you're allowed to freely do as you wilt, mm-hmm. so to speak, yeah. uh, amongst the members. And this is a different role from what you play in society. So it's kind of an ir- ironic. I mean, you wear a mask when you're in society, uh, you know, being a doctor or the banker or whatever your role is. That's one part of the film. Uh, and they're also wearing the mask in the ritual as part of an inversion. And of course, masks go back all the way to animistic traditions, uh, shamanistic traditions, right? Where you're evoking the deity or whatever. There's that idea is present. 
but I think it's mainly just to be uh, anonymity. And, and another important point, from a scholarly academic standpoint, when I was doing grad work, I did a lot of research on Renaissance balls and the tradition of the masked ball. And now this goes all the way back to medieval Europe, and it was common amongst the nobles to reenact the plays of the gods, many of which were orgies and were quite licentious. But this was basically kings, queens, nobles putting on masks and going to a big ball and uh, having a play or a ritual or a ceremony and then having a big party. Wow. So uh, this is nothing new. The masked ball tradition is, you know, hundreds of years old in Europe, and it has included orgies for a long time. Uh, and quite often, I would I would assume you know, the practitioners of sex magic. Another scene within that sequence, at least something that I noticed this last time I watched it in preparation for this interview, is that Tom Cruise's character, uh, Doctor Hartford, when he arrives to this mansion, I mean, it could it could be for a number of reasons, but I noticed that he doesn't join the rest of the group. He's kind of off to the side by a pillar which I guess makes him stand out a bit. And there's somebody in the balcony that takes note of him. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was uh, Ziegler, right? I, as yeah, I've th- always thought it was Ziegler, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to double check if you got the same vibe. And something that I wasn't quite clear on, and maybe you, you have some information on this, was everybody present that was wearing a, a cloak and a mask uh, a man? And only the women in the circle were the only the only females in in the group. Or uh, did you find anything in regards to that? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much that would uh, you know play into the role. That's a good question. I've always assumed that it was kind of a mix of of uh, persons. That it wouldn't be a, an all male cult per se, just yeah, because yeah. of the fact that um, they were very much pro gay. So you'll see mm, members right. of the cult are also homosexual. Mm-hmm. And so I think that suggests that they were more egalitarian mm-hmm. than something patriarchal. The reason that it's a bunch of beautiful women, I think, is intended to, to suggest that who, who do we have? Well, we have a beauty queen. Uh, and, you know, presi- basically this is just uh, the recent crop of inductees mm-hmm. <laughs> who are, you know, the, the, the recent uh, crew of babes. Uh, now, Kubrick could have been trying to say that, you know, that women are pimped out by these kinds of things, which does happen. So. Mm-hmm. That could be, that could be, but it's a good question. I've never really dwelt on that uh, extensively, but you make a good point there. And he gets picked by one of the, the, the young ladies and who warns him that he needs to get out of there, that he doesn't belong there. In your opinion, how did they know that was him? Do you think it was just because, you know, he, they didn't recognize the mask or something? I think that that's kind of explained at a certain point later on where they say, you showed up in a cab. They knew, they knew right away that, that it wasn't you. But again, I think it's not just those crop of girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is supposed to also be Bill's initiation. This was the oh. whole point of him being brought down this whole journey and, and why I believe that all the people were actors, in a sense, on the wow. part of the cult to lead him to that point. Okay, because now now you're tripping me out. So, uh, And this is me thinking out loud, by the way. I apologize and I have this question written, but... Uh, do you think then when Red Cloak asks Dr. Hartford to take his mask and subsequently to take his clothes off, do you think that taking his clothes off would have been the signal that, hey, yeah, I'm down for this? Or, again, am I reading too much into that one? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, if you, if you think about the hazing that we hear about in groups like Skull and Bones, mm-hmm. uh, it makes perfect sense. Okay. 
Now, one thing that I noticed in this whole sequence, and I don't know if you noticed this and, and the reason why I kind of went back and looked into this, because I remember a while back somebody, I can't remember who, I wish I could give due credit, and I apologize, but I remember somebody pointing out that during the uh, mask ball, if you watch their lower jaw when they talk, it doesn't really sync with the dialogue that they're saying. Obviously, this fueled the theory that there was a, a re-edit that was not Kubrick's cut that was the one that everybody got to see in the theaters. Have you found anything in your research about that, about some inconsistencies in, in that regard? I had never, I had not heard that. That's, that's an interesting, uh, take on it. It also could be, um, I mean, uh, Kubrick being such a perfectionist, it also could be intentional to suggest the waking dream state, which mm. is part of the film. Okay. But my general take, I guess, could simply be summed up that it, it's his hazing ritual. Uh, I yeah. mentioned, you know, the skull and bones. We, we've read or heard that, you know, the process of entering skull and bones includes laying in the coffin. You strip down nude. Uh, if you saw Good Shepherd with Matt Damon, there's that whole scene where, where he's inducted into yeah, Skull and Bones. And yeah, he's, basically, yeah. he's basically, he's, he's mud wrestling nude with other dudes and they're, he's getting pissed on. Right. Uh, right. that's his, that's his hazing. And I believe that this entire sequence of events is Bill and, uh, possibly Alice if she's not already in the cult. They're mm -hmm. a hazing ritual. Yeah, you know, it's funny because the more I think about it now as we're talking about it, it would appear to be that way. It, it, it begins to take on this look that it wasn't all just a, a series of random coincidences that led him there. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the uh, mansion where this scene was filmed? It, it seems to be property of the Rothschilds. A lot has been said about the Rothschilds. Does that play into, into this, uh, what this movie's, you know, what Kubrick was trying to communicate with this movie? It's entirely possible if we recall, you know, what we were talking about with the art and the mask, you know, it was a 1972 Rothschild ball that we've all seen these pictures of. Right. So that's entirely possible. And, uh, uh if I recall, this was at one time uh, a Rothschild uh, estate and I don't think it's owned by them anymore. I believe it's owned by British government or his past hands several times. I, I don't recall who the mm -hmm. present owner is. Uh, it's been some time since I looked at that, but, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. If, if I, it's, 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 it's also Bruce Wayne's manor, isn't it? Right. Mentor. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Well, there you go. So this was for a time, the home of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's transcendental meditation. If I recall, really? I've read that. Oh, yeah. Really that's what I've read. Uh, so I absolutely believe that the site is, cho is chosen for ritual reasons, yeah. I remember, uh, you know, in the movie, it looks like an impressive uh, mansion. It really made me wonder every time I drove past any luxurious place, what kind of weird and crazy things could be going on behind yeah, those. Yeah, no, there's a lot of those, doors, like, <laughs> you, know? you know, very Well, supposedly the, the Beatles were there, like, tripping out and oh, meditating really? with my yogi there for a period. I can only imagine. Yeah, that sounds about right. Honestly, <laughs> that sounds about right. There's something very uh, Christian, if you will, as to how the uh, young lady that intervenes to save uh, Dr. Hartford during the moment when Red Cloak has him stand before everyone, uh, you know, she says, she uses words like redeem, that she's going to redeem him. Right. Later, when he talks to Sigler, and Sigler brings up this whole situation about you know, being at the party and seeing him there. He says, you know, it was all theatrics. It was fake. Don't worry about it. 
I mean, that sounds like a very poor excuse because I always wonder if all of these things meant nothing, right? If all of this was just people wanted to blow off some steam and, you know, have some fun. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a really strange way uh, for people to have fun. So if it's meaningless, why go through these huge productions? Yeah, exactly. If you think about cults or many secret societies, they have blood oaths. And uh, some of them have the notion of uh, blood sacrifice. And so the idea of the redemption, that's all, you know, classical kind of biblical ideology from Leviticus, uh, you know, the, the Day of Atonement and uh, the blood sacrifice and so forth. It also has the later Christian idea of redemption through sacrifice, absolutely. So what I would say is I think that Bill never knows for sure, uh, you know, even the, the newspaper story, it said that she OD'd. Yeah. Bill is meant to think that she was killed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And right. so what this does is has the effect of scaring the pants off of him. And that's mm-hmm. the point. Right? Yeah. The point of this was to show him that you are now uh, kind of hanging out in a group of people that have a lot more power than you think. And they're able to pull strings at a much greater level than you ever imagined. So you'll never know. Uh, for sure, whether she was killed. Well, he, he does go and see the body, right? So yeah, I guess yeah. you could argue that yeah, he knows for sure that she was dead, uh, you know, if that's her. But there you go. That That's the point of it was to display to him the seriousness of what he was sniffing around at. You know, it's funny because I've always wondered why, uh, you know, people would do these kind of things. I guess that's my main question. And that's why I never buy, you know, the explanation a lot of times that people give, you know, when talk about some of these kind of very occult practices that, oh, you know, it, it means nothing or whatever. It's like, well, you know, there's obviously, you know, there's, there's some meaning to this. Otherwise, you know, people wouldn't spend so much time memorizing all of these things and doing all of these things. Now, one of the interesting things that happens when, uh, Dr. Bill is, is out there again, and he goes back to look for Domino, uh, is that there is a very interesting book on her little uh, bookshelf. One is a sociology book, but then the other book is called Shadows on the Mirror. And uh, it's uh, it's by Francis uh, uh, Fifield, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. And it's funny because I was reading what this book was about, and this is what it says. By day, Sarah Fortune works as a lawyer in a prestigious firm in Mayfair. But by night, she provides lonely men with intimate company, an arrangement with which she is happy until she becomes implicated with a dead body found off the English coast. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that echoes what we have seen and will see throughout that movie, correct? And I guess it's yeah, just right. testament to Kubrick and his attention to detail. Because again, I think one of the, the biggest criticisms that this movie gets is people saying, you know, I don't get it so long as it's boring. But I guess you kind of have to understand that for Kubrick, everything had a purpose and everything had a meaning, correct? Yeah, it, it was not entertainment per se, I feel. It was not. It was meant to be a message. It's yeah. a, me- a message and a ritual, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things that, that you said that I find really interesting, and uh, I'm going to quote here, is that uh, talking about Alice, uh, you know, obviously... There is that scene towards the end of the movie where Tom Cruise comes back after uh, he returns his his costume minus the mask. He comes home and he finds the mask on his pillow next to Alice as she sleeps. Obviously, I have to ask you, what are we meant to take from that? Did she find the mask? And this is her way of saying that she knows. 
uh, or you know, was, was she it a just, subconscious yeah. act? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the key indicators. I mentioned earlier the math problem incident. Uh, mm-hmm. This is another one. Yeah, this is one of the key indicators in my view that she knows what's going on and or is involved in the cult. Now, the one thing that would suggest that maybe she's not would be that when Bill tells her what he's been up to, she gets upset and cries. Uh, now, she could also be acting, right? I mean, if she's mm-hmm. part of the cult, right. then she's been playing along all along, and uh, she may not want to give away to Bill everything that she knows, because she's just been kind of hinting and subtly uh, signifying that she may know what's up with the dream, with the math problem, with the, uh, uh, her, her knowing that he wanted to sleep with, sleep with those two girls, Marty, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, that's the way I take the mask is to be a, a signifier, most likely of her uh, involvement or knowledge of the, the entirety of the event. Yeah, and something that you say in your analysis of the movie is that either Alice has been drugged and doesn't recall being used, thinking it was a dream, or she is a willing part of the initiation process for Bill. And I mean, both at this point, right, are pretty likely possibilities. Do you lean towards one or the other? I think the the weight of evidence suggests that she's a part of it. Uh, And, you know, is she one of these women in the circle, maybe? I mean, Mm. I mean, think about just on a basic level, beginning of the film, Hubert shows Nicole Kidman's bare butt, yeah. right? Yeah. And when we get to the ritual, what do we see? Well, a bunch of chicks bare butt. Right. Uh, I think that's suggestive, right? So uh, that's what I lean towards. But you know, I would, I'm obviously willing to be corrected if somebody has a better argument. And that's the thing about this film, right? That it has so many layers that I think as time goes yeah. on, we will decipher more. We're almost out of time, but let's end, obviously, in the closing scene. They're out Christmas shopping with their little girl. There seem to be a lot of little occult symbols in in this particular sequence. And, of course, it ends with Alice telling uh, her husband that, uh, you know, they need to to have sex a little more, basically. What is the point of this scene? Because it almost seems, I mean, it doesn't feel like an ending necessarily. I, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, wait, was that it? Did I miss something? You know what I'm saying? I was one of those people that was left a little perplexed because this scene, it, it, it's its a bit strange there at the end. But what's happening here? I've read stuff that here you can see signals that their daughter is going to be initiated in the cult as well. And, uh, you know, that the bears mean this and things like that. What what can you tell me about this this whole ending? I'm familiar with that analysis and it is possible I mean it, it does look like the same people that were at the party um, it does look like the daughter is kind of walking off. That could be um, and certainly I believe the symbolism in the gift shop there is intentional with the magic circle and we saw the magic circle at the ritual uh, you know we see uh, pentagrams throughout the film, both upwards and inverted, you know, which signify both good and evil. And the way that I take the last scene is kind of, you know, they've had their eyes open, uh, that's reference. And, you know, Bill's kind of in this state of, he can either move up the social ladder uh, and go along with what the requirements of that will be. Uh, and the requirements of that will be 
presumably you're going to share your wife <laughs> uh, if you go along with this to move up this ladder in this way. Uh, or you can go back down the ladder, sort of full of social structure, sort of order, and uh, enjoy your married life. But if you want to try to go beyond that, there's a price to pay. That was the big message of the hazing is, uh, you know, if you're going to go through with it, uh, you know, there's a price to pay. Uh, my last question, Jay, how would you categorize this film? Is it a horror? Is it a thriller? Uh, to me, it's a horror. But uh, is, it, is it like a, yeah, is it like a sexual thriller, an erotic thriller? How, where do you see this, this film falling into? Try to remember the way that I, I see it very similar to David Lynch's Lost Highway in Mulholland Drive. And I'm trying to remember the exact chronology I used, but something like, like a neo-noir occult Jungian uh, psychosphere drama erotic thriller. <laughs> so, I guess that's a, yeah. That's I mean, I don't know. And, uh, titles, you, you could use yeah. the whole, uh, you know, bevy of appellations for this. <laughs> Jay, what can I say? This has been insightful uh, and entertaining at the same time. Why don't you tell people with your website and social media? Right. So, yeah, I do jaysanalysis.com, just jaysanalysis.com. And what I do is offer podcasts, interviews, philosophy, lectures, talks uh, on a, a variety of subjects from ancient philosophy, uh, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth, uh, history. Uh, presently, I'm doing uh, Dr. Carol Quigley's infamous tome, Tragedy and Hope, which basically gives the history of the 20th century, and uh, those lectures are half free, and the other half is by subscription, so you can subscribe if you like my stuff. My book, Esoteric Hollywood, will be coming out in a couple months, and that can be pre-ordered at my website or Amazon or Trying Day Publishers, uh, Trying Day, and then uh, my Facebook and Twitter or any of that can be accessed there at Jay's analysis. You'll see link on the sidebar for all that. And can you give us just a, a quick little blurb what you're going to cover in your book? Absolutely. So basically, I've written 110 or 20 film analyses that got really popular, uh, a couple million views, I think, uh, in the last couple of years. And so I got offered a publishing deal and I published about the 20 or 30 best ones and I rewrote and added a whole bunch of material. So the Eyes Wide Shut analysis, for example, has been completely beefed up and revamped a lot longer, a lot more info. Mm -hmm. uh, that constitutes uh, an entire chapter in the book. I believe there's 25 chapters uh, in four sections. The sections are made up of Kubrick, uh, David Lynch, um, Hitchcock and 007, and Steven Spielberg, and then a couple more 80s things like uh, Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, and Ridley Scott films. And so basically... I, I analyze all those films the exact same way that you've heard me talk tonight. <laughs> wow. You know, I'm definitely going to get a copy of that, and, and hopefully we can get you back on the show to talk about that book, because honestly, that sure. sounds really, really fascinating. I, I uh, Kudos to you, because I've read a couple of your analyses on your website uh, in regards to some of my favorite movies, and uh, I must say, you, sir... Uh, Definitely do your, your work. Yeah. You clarify a lot of things. Awesome, that, man. You know. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we'll Thank definitely you. be in touch. You know, I really appreciate it. I know you were on the road and it means a lot to us that in spite of that, you, you were able to join us and talk about eyes wide shut at such length. Absolutely. And next time I'll do my bow impersonation for you. Awesome. I'll, I'll hold you to that. Thank take, you so, so much. <laughs> take it easy, Jay. Enjoy the rest of your night. All right. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. That was Jay Dyer. Mm -hmm. of jasonalysis.com Jason check out his website check out his podcast check out his book 
that book yeah. is going to talk about a lot of stuff that you hear me Esoteric talk about, right? Hollywood colon sex cults and symbols in film. Yeah, so definitely check it out. Uh, I'm like I said, I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for that book. It sounds really, really fascinating. And no, I can't wait to read it. I love books, and this one is definitely some midnight reading yeah. time. If you missed any part of the interview, definitely check out the website in the coming days, wotrradio.com. We'll be posting it there. And um, I'll be posting some of the pictures that I took at the uh, Stanley Kubrick exhibit when it was down here. And, you know, like I mentioned, it's going to be up there in San Francisco coming up in, in about a month or two. So definitely check that out if you get a chance. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter. West of the Rockies on Facebook. The website is wotrradio.com. And the Twitter is at wotrradio. Don't forget to subscribe That's on right. iTunes. Uh, I was going to say Twitter, <laughs> Stitcher, uh, uh, YouTube, and all that good stuff. Everywhere. Genevieve, Genevieve, you weigh on Twitter, and you can catch it right here Thursday nights, 8 p.m. on No Added Flavors. That being said, boy, boy, oh boy, why don't we go out with this cover of White Rabbit from the Leaving Sucker you. Punch soundtrack, which is another movie that gets yeah, analyzed quite a bit at this right. level. Leaving you with a lot to think about. Yeah, no, this is this definitely was one of those no, shows. This, so. this is one of those mind trip shows. <laughs> well, you look pretty mind trip. I I'm tripped out. I'm I'm thinking about this stuff. I'm constantly convoluting the stuff in my mind. And uh, you're not alone on that. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. Want to see you back next week. Until then, enjoy this little white rabbit cover by Emiliana Torini from Sucker the Punch. Sucker Punch soundtrack. Here we go, folks. Enjoy. We'll see you next week. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.